Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 28. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 28. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you, and you can turn to page 778. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, <clears throat> saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the, lo the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being will be saved. For the, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is a Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. And if they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, let's start with a prayer before we begin. Blessed Lord, who caused all scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, it's good to be here, share the Word of God with you. 
if you read this passage and then you talk, you, you remember um, I was trashing on this uh, show about the Messiah. Like you literally just read, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. And like episode one is like, look, he's in the wilderness, let's go out. It's like, hello. Anyway, so those are, these are things like when we read and listen and study the Bible, there is an understanding that comes. And um, hopefully with that understanding for the elect, there's joy that comes. There's satisfaction that comes. Last week marked uh, a very significant day for many people's lives. We saw that Kobe Bryant died. And Kobe Bryant dying had everybody think really hard uh, about not just like they were sad, but they took it to the, no the next step. The people that I spoke with, they took it to the next step and they started to wonder why they were so sad. Why, why am I so sad that this basketball player died. And of course, any death is tragic, but Kobe Bryant especially seems to me a little bit more, if not a lot more, for our young people. When I was a younger man, uh, there was um, an English royal, a British royal that died tragically too, Princess Diana. And when she died, and some of you are too young, but when she died, like there was weeping and wailing across the world. People were just so sad. And it's one of those things where you start thinking and like it's because he had so much more to offer. Uh, one of our young men came up to me and said, Piyuj, I remember the last game that Kobe Bryant played and scored like 60 points. We were at your house watching that game. And then I, I thought to myself, oh yeah, I remember my grand 42-inch screen TV. We're in this tiny 300-foot apartment and we're all watching Kobe Bryant go crazy in his final game. By the way, if you need a place for the Super Bowl, I still have that 42-inch TV and I invite you to come watch it with me. It's crazy, the clarity and the definition of that TV. It's like we're back in the 90s. But um, and all, 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 all joking aside, in seriousness, uh, people are forced to be reminded of their mortality. It's really weird, right? It's really weird. We're, we're like thinking about our mortality now and we're thinking like, what in the world, why do I feel a certain way? Why do I feel like there is such great loss? Isn't it because we've all been affected communally by even just one person can have such a lasting and deep effect uh, because of what we shared through their, you know, their giving or their uh, just participation in this society? That being said, um, also what has been in the news a lot is this new virus that has come up, the coronavirus. I, I joke a little too much, and some people think, ah, he's, he's so irreverent, and he doesn't appreciate the seriousness of it. But as soon as I saw it in the news, I said, short sell the beer. Short sell the beer stock of corona, because people won't know the difference between the virus and the beer, and sure enough, that, that Monday dropped 50 points, but I thought that was amazing. But um, this, is, this is serious. Uh, my wife is uh, planning on going next week, and so I told her, if you go and it hits South Korea, don't come back. No, I, I didn't say that. No, actually, I did say that, but obviously it was a joke. All right, so um, I'm reading things like 
there are lines out in Korea in the pharmacies, and they're trying to buy face masks. I went to Walgreens because I had a, I, uh, my stomach was indigestion. I had some indigestion. And right at the counter were face masks. Um, one really interesting thing was my neighbor, so I have one bad neighbor and one good neighbor. So one good neighbor, I like him a lot because whenever I see him, I go, hi, neighbor, and he goes, hi, and that's the only interaction we have. And that's like the best neighbor. So in Christmas, I said, you are like the best neighbor. All I have to do is say hi, and then we take care of our business. Um, but he, for some weird reason, and he's like super Jersey. He grew, I guess he grew up here. He has a house here. He has three kids. Two of them are cops in Jersey. The third one is a teacher. And so he would come up to me, and he came up to me the other day, and he looked at me square in the eye, and he shook my hand. He's like, hi, how are you? I was like, dude, I'm not Chinese, but, but I was like, where is this coming from? But he was so sincere. I was like, hi, I hope you're okay. It's like, yes. No, I didn't say that, but uh, I, I just said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm okay. It's all good. And, uh, you know, this is really affecting people. I'm reading stuff in the news like, oh, you know, you got to watch out for racism because if you're Asian, people are going to look at you. I was working when the shooting happened in Virginia Tech. And I remember I was in the elevator. The elevator door opened at another floor. This older lady looked at me, and then she just didn't get in the elevator. And so I, I went through that. This is like shaking my hand is nothing, people. And then, if anything, the Chinese people are harder on their own people. We've quarantined like millions and mil like 30 plus million people are quarantined in China. But somehow they still get out. And so we, we're having more and more incidences of infection of this virus. I find it so interesting that this is going on in the world. We're trying to process like Kobe Bryant's death. And in the background, there's this virus that's spreading. And I, I would tell people, people would ask me, should we be concerned? And I would always say, you know what? Like, people die of viruses and illnesses all the time. But instead of being alarmed, you know, just intellectually speaking or scientifically speaking, you just want to look at the trend. So when does it taper down? So right now, it's on the up and up. So you watch and you're careful, right? It doesn't look like it's tapering down right now, so the infection rate is rising. So be careful. And so I, th I think the government's doing a good job in quarantine, quarantining the people that have been affected and putting out some you know, fly warnings and like barring people from China uh, for, from flying here. So those are good things to think about. There are things like that happening all the time. And I find it so interesting. There's all these things happening right now, this very moment, and the passage that we're due to read, meaning I didn't manipulate anything and saying, oh, let's do this. Like I gave these passages out months ago and Pastor Paul and I divvied it up. It's this passage. It's about the end of the world. And so I find it quite interesting because I do not believe in coincidences. If you believe in God, there are no such things. And I think it's something that we should reflect as a people. How do we take mortality? And how are we to understand the end of the world? And so last week, this is the last week of Jesus' life. There's two days before the crucifixion, before he gets hung on the cross, nails are driven into his hands and feet, 
And this is what he does. Last week, we saw that if you have only a week to live, and I asked people, you know, after this, we feel our mortality. And I even asked Junzuk, our assistant, uh, pastoral assistant, and so I asked him, you know, after the whole Kobe Bryant incident, if you knew you had one week to live, would you live differently? Or would you have done things differently? He goes, absolutely. Because that's the answer. Absolutely. If you know you have a limited time, would you do things differently? Absolutely. Because we live like we're immortal. We love the immortal movies like superhero movies or fantasy movies like you're an elf and shoot arrows and you live like a thousand years. But don't worry. After the thousand years, you just take a boat and then you live another thousand years in some other place. So we love movies like that or fantasy stories like that. However, if you really think about it, our mortality is closer to a week than it is a thousand years. Let's be real. We may not know the exact date, but it's closer to a week than a thousand years. And so if you had one week to live, what would you do is the question. But Jesus knew that. Like, you don't know that. So a lot of us, we want to live like next week isn't our last week. But I don't know that. You don't know that. But Jesus knew that. What did he do knowing that? He gives the woes to the Pharisees. He's like, woe to you. Not just once, but seven times to the leaders of the community. This is not like happy, happy, let's spend time with family. And he gives this stern warning to the religious officials. And this is where we start off the passage today. As Jesus was leaving the temple area and he was going away, his disciples started to come out and point out the buildings to Jesus. I don't know why they did that. Maybe the buildings were so magnificent, they were just like, wow, I think so. But also at the same time, maybe it was because Jesus was so fired up in the judgment that he was pronouncing that the disciples were like, would you like some coffee or cake? Look at the pretty buildings. And so maybe they were trying to uh, show a little bit of a, you know, kind of appease his anger because we know that they knew he was the Messiah. At this point, in this juncture, we know that Jesus powerfully pro proclaims his Messiahship and he is the one to come. Jesus isn't phased, though. Jesus isn't dazzled. If you look at all the buildings, the first time, I don't know, you all grew up here, but I hear stories of people who come to New York City for the first time. They go to Manhattan, and we're walking around Manhattan. People are just like, wow, look at the skyline. It's crazy. Look at the buildings. If you just stare at the buildings like this, it just looks like, the whole world is moving, and things like that. And people would just take pictures and, and things of that nature. Uh, it, it has been said that the buildings there at the time were so magnificent, it may have been, it may have been one of the most magnificent structures in the world. I'll give you an example. One, each stone that was cut out, and, and if, when you go to like the Empire State Building, you actually see the bottom and then you see on the sidewalk, you see the stones, like it's carved out. It's to show like, ah, this is, 
you know, now people are like, this is architectural design, this is to show the beauty, but it's reminiscing, it throws, throws us back to when grand structures were made and stones were built, right? I mean, buildings were made by these magnificent stones. What they would do is they would take these stones, let's say I take this stone like this, like that's, that's like pretty sizable stone, and then I would, you know, uh, shape it with my craftsmanship, and then you would fit it in, and then you would see a magnificent structure full of these beautiful stones. Josephus, the historian, would record that some of these stones in the temple structure were as big as 67, well, it's 45 cubits long. That's 67.5 feet in a conservative measure. One stone, 67.5 feet long, one stone, 7.5 feet high. That's like yay high. One stone and nine feet wide. That's how magnificent these structures in the temple was. It was started by Herod the Great. Herod the Great came into power in 20 BC, around that time. And in 20 BC, he uh, financed and started this temple restructuring, rebuilding project. Herod was rich. Herod was powerful. That's why he had a following. We went over this two weeks ago. There were literally followers that called themselves the Herodians, and they were still building it. 20 BC, all the way up until its destruction in 70 AD, they were still building this structure. There was inlay of gold almost on every stone. We know this to be fact because when the temple structure was burned down, what they did was they would put things that would burn consistently for a long time. The stones would all crumble and the gold would be melted onto the floor and Titus, who overtook Jerusalem, would then be able to excavate the gold. That's how rich this structure was. It was amazing. People would say and people would write that in the day, the gold was so bright, you were just blinded by the reflection of the sunlight to your eyeballs from the gold. Right now in Jerusalem, there's just one dome that's gold. Try that magnified and multiplied a ton of times. And at night, people would say it wasn't even dark because it was so bright from just the moonlight and the starlight, you could actually literally still see the gold sparkle at night. That's how magnificent this structure was. And the disciples would go, wow, look at, these, look at these buildings, Jesus. That's why what Jesus says here should have taken them back and should still take us back. And verse 2, he goes, you, he answered them, you see all these, right? You see all these structures? Truly, which means amen. This is for sure happening. I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And if you're looking at this, you would imagine New York City, let's say the skyline, to even a greater degree, a richer degree, with inlays of gold. And you're just like, this is amazing. Look at these sturdy structures. And then Jesus goes, not just one building, all these structures will be taken down. And then you'd be thinking, whoa, that's... That's crazy. The, the main historian, um, there's Tacitus and there's other historians, but the main historian, we see all these things from, and they all kind of corroborate with each other. They, they weren't living together, but the accounts corroborate with each other. And so like Josephus or Flavius Josephus, 
uh, he was first in charge of defending a city called Jotopata, Jotopara. And so in Jotopara, the Romans would siege that city. This guy was brilliant, okay? He would have very detailed accounts of what was happening. He would write in his historical accounts something that he discovered to be called the battering ram. You all know what it is, but even 2000, in 2,000 years ago, that was like a new thing. That was crazy. And he would, he would in detail describe what the battering ram was. There would be this huge log, like huge. At the end of it would be the silver or metal structure, like a head, like a ram. That's why it was literally called the battering ram. There would be scores of soldiers that would pull it back in with ropes like a pendulum, and then they would release it, and that battering ram would hit the structure, the wall, door, one or two times was all it took, and it would all come crumbling down. They will bring this battering ram to, to Jatopada, and uh, what he, he was the general in charge of defending that Jewish city. What he would do is when they would pull the battering ram back, he would take uh, a bunch of um, chaff. You guys know what chaff is? It's like the stuff, the husk of the corn and wheat, like the stuff that, that's like very, very flaky, right? He would take bags and sacks of the chaff and he would throw it to deflect uh, the battering ram. This is brilliant. This is 2,000 years ago. And so it would be almost cushioning and deflecting the battering ram like you're throwing down a bunch of pillows, right? But it's chaff, it's worthless. So he would do that. And that, uh, that siege would take not just one day, it would take multiple days, like 40 plus days, right? And then when the, the soldiers would try to pull back this battering ram, he would take hot oil and he would throw it over the walls and scald them, burn them to death, the soldiers. And if you are thinking, wow, this is really reminiscent of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it is. But this is like 2,000 years before the Lord of the Rings was written. Lord of the Rings took it from history. Eventually, Jatopara is taken, and 40,000 people are, are, are slain. But the Roman general in charge, um, Vespasian, he spares Josephus because this guy, he's like, this guy is so brilliant. And he lets him travel with him. So Josephus is now, this Jewish guy is traveling with Vespasian. Eventually, you'll see in history, like he tried to take over uh, as Caesar. But he has a son, Titus. It, Titus would lead the charge against Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then what you see prophesied by Jesus is exactly happening. It literally happens. Titus utterly destroys and kills everybody in Jerusalem, destroys every stone. They, it would be recorded that they would take every stone that was rubble and just chuck it down the path, like the valleys and the path, so nothing could ever be rebuilt again. When you think about it, Jesus is going, not one stone will be left here that won't be thrown down. And you're like, whoa, that's crazy. But then if you are reminded, uh, this is a very famous passage that people use in Luke 19, uh, when Jesus first enters, and then kids are crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. We, we read this in Matthew, but in Luke 19, there's another recording. When they, go to the, when they go to Jesus, the Pharisees and the leaders, they go to Jesus and they go, Teacher, tell your people, your disciples, to stop saying Hosanna. This is blasphemous. 
excuse me, and this is what Jesus says to them. I tell you, if these, meaning the stone, uh, if these, meaning the, the disciples, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Stones would cry out. Which stones was he referring to? Which stones would cry out? The very stones crying out is judgment. It's judgment because the people in Jerusalem refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Messiah. God himself came down to this earth and visited what, what, what was supposed to be the most holy of holies, the holiest place to God, and they would reject God. And the stones would cry out. And I find it really interesting. This is just a side note. I find it really interesting. Like people will go, oh, you know, if we don't sing praises, the rocks here will cry out. It's like, people, please take it in reference. That's not what it means. It's like if we don't sing praises, I guess this mic stand will cry out. No, this is, this is judgment, people. Like seriously, please stop that. Okay, uh, that's just the sidebar. Uh, rant over. But uh, after Jesus says all these things, right, he goes, not one stone will be left unturned. The disciples ask Jesus, oh, this is, this is a serious thing. So they ask Jesus two clarifying questions. And this whole discourse that we're going to study for the next few weeks is called the Olivet Discourse. It's the final discourse in Matthew. There are five discourses, meaning long explanations or speeches or teachings of Jesus. This is the final one. But the whole Olivet Discourse, which is the longest, by the way, discourse recorded in Mark. Mark just records events, and he has short phrases. But Mark records this discourse. That's how important it is. And by the way, it's the most confusing. This whole discourse revolves around Jesus answering two questions. And that is what the disciples ask him. The disciples ask him, tell us, when will these things be? When is this going to happen, the things that you are saying? Because right now, New York City looks pretty amazing. These buildings look pretty amazing. You are saying all of a sudden they're going to disappear? Oh, that's, that's weird. So tell us, when will these things be? And number two, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And the end of the age is only used in Matthew, but it's true. And the end of the age. This study now that we're going to do in the Olivet Discourse is what we refer to in theology as eschatology. Eschatology means the study of the end times. And this discourse, this Olivet Discourse, is still hotly debated among commentators who have all these differing opinions, about, but they're about very serious issues. But these issues is what Jesus will bring up. This is why Jesus, when he starts the discourse, he says, see that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. This means when he's going to talk about this, you need to pay attention. You can't think like, mm, yeah, I guess Jesus is coming. This is going to be really serious stuff. People are going to say all sorts of other things so see that no one leads you astray. That's how he starts this discourse. And this discourse is, of course, again, provoked by the prophecy that Jesus told them on the destruction of the temple. 
Everyone and their mother knew that the temple wasn't just a building. It symbolized the very presence and favor of God. This is where God dwelled. This is where he gathered all his people for sacrifice, for atonement. The temple's destruction, even if it's one sentence, how can you say just one sentence, Jesus? The temple is a huge deal. For a thousand years, this is how a Jew was a Jew. They centered their lives around the temple. But Jesus going, amen. He says truly, right, which is translated from amen. He's amening himself. This is for sure it's going to happen. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is like doubly forceful, not just the amen, but this is thrown down. This is a picture of force. Um, What could Jesus mean, though? How can these things happen? And with the two questions that were asked, The disciples must have recognized there is an end of the age or era that was close. And Jesus wasn't fickle with his words. He didn't have a capricious disposition. He wasn't moody. He didn't have swings. He wasn't throwing a fit because people wouldn't listen to him. They knew that he was very serious. So that's why he starts again, double downing, like see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Literally, he goes, see that no one leads you astray. And he goes, a lot of people will come, say, I am the Christ, and lead many astray. There are still people in the United States and across the world, of course, that say they are the Messiah. The most recent one I read is still living. He was born in 1965. He worked in the MI5, which is like the CIA of the U.K., And then he quit, he retired, and he now claims to be the Messiah. His first name is David, and um, he was, uh, he he like learned stuff. He had a conversation with another guy who says he's the Messiah, but his name was also David. There's things about the name David which is really interesting. A lot of us are named David. Watch out that you don't become the Antichrist. Anyway, but (laughs) we all remember David Koresh. You remember that? His name was. I mean, David, like David Koresh. And then so it was in uh, Waco, Texas. I don't know if you, all, you were all alive for that, but it, it was a crazy thing where they had to destroy and kill everybody in that camp. But um, all joking aside, obviously this is joking if your name isn't like, you know, just don't name your kid David. No, I'm just kidding. See, it's all, I'm still kidding here, but people literally still think that they are the Messiah. It's still happening today. Like, so he was saying, for many will come in my name. This is absolutely true. Many have come, and they're still coming, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. People follow them. We had a sister here who's part of a cult, and she became baptized, and she was part of a cult that said this guy named Sun Young Moon is the Messiah, and people would follow him. People follow these people who claim that they are the Christ. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. This literally was like two weeks ago. People would ask me, Huge, are we going into war? This is a rumor of war, and Jesus would be saying things like this, but he literally says it word for word here. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and then he goes, see that you are not alarmed. See that you are not alarmed. Don't be alarmed at wars and rumors of wars, because they must take place. 
but they are not yet the end. This is like crazy stuff that Jesus is saying because each one of these words have come true or will come true, but none of them have proven false. It says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, but there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now that we have seismic measurers, we know that if it's over a 7.0, it's possibly dangerous. We now know that every year, the average every year, we have 15 earthquakes in the world that are 7.0 on average. So there are earthquakes in various places. But then he goes, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Because in verse 8, he says, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. You know when you have birth pains, it's increasing in nature. Labor starts, but as the pain increases, you know that you are getting closer and closer to the end or what is to come, right? So the metaphor is given because they will be increasing in nature, the pain. Number two, the metaphor of birth pains are given because while the birth pains in itself is not celebrated, I don't know anybody that would ever think birth pains, yay, right? It's not celebrated in itself. Birth pains is still looked on and looked at with great hope. Why? Because what comes after, because of what comes after the birth pains. Birth pains, while not celebrated in itself, is still looked at with great hope. This is why it's so important when Jesus is talking to his disciples for the believer, when trials and tribulations come, we don't lose hope. We don't get depressed, but rather we, we receive hope and comfort because Jesus himself is saying these things will happen and must happen, but these are birth pains. There is something attached to that. On top of that, though, there are these warnings to his disciples. There are birth pains, but don't misconstrue the signs. Don't mistake the signs for something else. Don't get confused. Don't be listening to people like, I heard from God and God, Jesus is going to come on October, blah, blah, blah. This happens like every year and Jesus doesn't come. You're like, dude, how do you still have people following you? Like he comes on the radio, some dude named Harry, and then, People still go, oh, I have to sell everything. Like, don't misconstrue the signs. If you're really listening to Jesus' words, you wouldn't fall for that because Jesus himself is specifically saying, don't get fooled. Listen to my words, not some fool that says Jesus is going to come on October or something like that. And in verse 9, it says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another, hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. By none of this means, it's uh, the gospel of the kingdom is preached and spread throughout the world, it doesn't mean that everyone will receive the gospel, but when the gospel or the good news is preached, we have learned that two things happen. Now, I want to remind you again, two things happen. The expression itself, if you read the Greek, preached, is a neutral expression. And so, when the gospel is preached, two things happen. happen. When the gospel is rightly preached, two things 
happen. People either receive salvation or they receive a curse. People receive salvation or they receive a curse. But the gospel must be preached. The gospel and the good news of the kingdom must be shown throughout the ends of the world. So when you see, and the verse 15 is really interesting because it starts off, when you see the abomination of desolation, these words exactly were very reminiscent of Daniel, but Jesus makes it very clear by saying, spoken of the prophet or by the prophet Daniel. Uh, Daniel, I'm just going to read you two verses that talk about this, about the desolation, the abomination of the desolation. Uh, in Daniel 9, 27 And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And so that's Daniel 9.27. Daniel 12.11 is the other verse that reminds us of the abomination of the desolation. And it says, And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So there is good reason to believe that the followers of Jesus will listen to this. They studied Daniel, and they would take this very seriously. They took this very seriously because these are very serious words given to them by Jesus. And that's why he would say, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Uh, there is good reason that everybody who listened to Jesus' words followed it. Why? Because obviously there are his disciples, so they would follow it. But even historical records would show us that every single person or Christian follower of Jesus did flee by at least 68 AD. They left Jerusalem. And that was pretty much halfway through the siege. And we'll know they did, we know they did that because they didn't die. They didn't die. Jesus is giving so much detail because this is such a serious and impending prophecy the ones that were listening at the time must have thought wow this is a very serious tone like he's not telling jokes he's not being sarcastic he's not being overly moody emotional but he's very serious in everything that he's saying you know in 70 AD the destruction of the temple was complete but there are still historical accounts of what was happening during that time from Tacitus, like I said, and Josephus. It, the conditions got so bad there. It was so bad. And it's so interesting that Jesus would say, like, don't even go up to the house and take your stuff. Like, oh, you really want, like, oh, yeah, this place is bad. I need to escape. Oh, let me look for my switch, you know, my game, my phone, whatever it is. So because when I'm traveling, I might get bored. Like, this is serious. Like, you don't have time to even get your jacket. Get out. When you know this is coming, just get out. When you start seeing these things that I'm saying is going to take place, just get out. Don't even go back because you think it's cold. For your jacket. And then he goes, at last, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. That's so sad. Like, he, he, has, he has compassion, great compassion, especially for those that are pregnant and for those that are nursing infants. That means they're still on milk. These are very, very young children or still in the womb that need to be protected by the mother. Uh, the destruction, during the destruction of the temple, conditions got so bad. There's this one recording of a nursing mother who would roast her baby, like cook her baby, 
she ate half her baby, and then she would offer it to other people, the other half. And it's recorded that the people around her were so disgusted that they couldn't even look at her. But this was happening. This is how bad it was. This is, this is, Jesus, when he's talking, he's just not like, you know, just get out, guys. This is so extreme that if you listen to what actually happened in history, this, there's reason that Jesus is saying these things in such a serious tone. And verse 21, he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. The great wrath of God that we see in Revelation, that we saw in Isaiah, and people were like, I don't like the Old Testament, God. He's so wrathy. Like, this is New Testament too. This is Jesus. This is Revelation. This is what we need to be alert to. And we here now see a sort of mingling, almost a blurring of the temple destruction to the end of the age. So he is going to answer two of these questions. This is the exact thing the disciples are asking about. There is a mingling and sort of a connection between the temple destruction and the end of the age. And Jesus goes in verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being will be saved. This is how severe the persecution will be. We are here in the United States, but there are still people across the world, places like China, places like North Korea, where they have internment camps for just saying, you are Christian. There are stories that I heard that in North Korea, they would, they would uh, bar, if you're a Christian and in an internment camp, they would bar you from looking up because even looking at the sun was a grace that you did not deserve. So people would say, like, these prisoners would have, like, humps on the back of their neck because they were never able to move it up because if they did, they would be tortured and they would be persecuted to such a great degree. This is happening today, too. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, there he is, do not believe it. Stop watching that stuff too. It's garbage. If you know the severity of what Jesus is saying, even like fictional stuff, and you're like, oh, yeah, it's good. You should watch. Like, it's such garbage because this is such a serious tone in which Jesus is telling his disciples, don't believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and even perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. He's letting you know, forewarned. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say to you, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpses, the vultures will gather. What does this all mean and what do we have to take from this? If we are his disciples, how are we to understand it? Jesus in the Gospel of John uh, chapter 10, he says, when he, has, when he has brought all out on his own, he goes before them. And he's talking about him being a shepherd. Uh, the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they, they, they do not know the voice of strangers. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, and you know the seriousness of what Jesus is saying, you really feel that in your heart? Like, this really is the end time, people. This really is the end time. And you know the seriousness of this tone? Do you know his voice? Could you honestly tell what is really 
gospel truth and what is just something that people made up to lead you astray? Here's another question. Do you hate his voice? Do you hate his voice? Every time, like we see in the Bible, remember the scriptures are the voice of God, right? And so every time we see in the Bible, oh, we should live a holy life. We should flee from sexual immorality. We should not covet. We should not steal. We should not hate. We should not curse. We should not murder. Do all these things. But rather, we should love in the way God teaches us to love. And then when you hear that, and he's like, you should not do this, you you start hating that voice. Because here's the challenge. If you hate the voice of God, if you hate what's in the Bible, I'm talking about every dot and tittle, not just picking and choosing what you like. If you hate his voice, why would you ever think that you want to be close to it? Why would you ever think that you want to be close to that voice? We've been given the word of God, which is his voice. This is the voice of the shepherd. Why would you ever think that you want to be in heaven? Because heaven means you are in close proximity, not just for a day or two hours at a time. In heaven, you are in close proximity for eternity to God. When you can't even listen or bear his voice now or even come to even try to obey him, what makes you think that anything will change later on? You may think that's a little severe, but this is the challenge that we've been given because this is the severity of Jesus' voice. The question is, do you know his voice? Because if you know his voice, and when you heard this, this passage being read, this passage being explained, you saw in your heart there really is something wrong with the world. There really is something wrong with me and what needs to be made right. I can't do. I just can't do it. I'm lazy. I actually do hate the voice of God. Oh my God, I do hate his his ordinances, his commands, his instruction. You know what would happen? Then you would cry out to God, I am scared. I need clarity and I need something to change. This is what Jesus promises. He promises that if you would go to him, he would change your heart because that's what the issue is. It's a heart issue. The main thing is, do you love God? Do you love God? If you love God, then you will start to know his voice. And if you love God, then you will start to obey his voice. And if you love God, then you will start to heed his warnings. And if you love God, then you will be able to rest assured in the promise of his salvation from judgment. Do you know his voice? Have you been obeying his voice? Have you been heeding his warnings? Then rest assured in the promise of his salvation from judgment. Christ is the one that will protect you. He is the one that says, For false Christs and prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. He's saying it's not possible. If you follow him, it won't be possible to lead you astray. It'll be crazy. It's going to be crazy. It's going to get worse. 
but it won't be possible because God is the one that holds you. If you listen to his voice, you are following him. He's the one that is protecting you. This is why it's so important that we remind ourselves to listen to his voice and to obey his voice because this is just the beginning of the birth pains. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time, and we thank you that you have given us a time to recognize, remember, be reminded that this isn't just some club. Uh, this is, these are serious words that you've given us. Either we fully reject it or we fully accept it because these are the, thing, these are the only two choices that you've given us by speaking this way. But Lord, I just want to pray for mercy on each and every soul here. Help us to take your words seriously. Help us to obey them. And Lord, when we cannot, and we will not, but when we cannot, our instinct as a child will be to come to you, lay down before you, cry out to you, and ask you for your strength and help. For you are our only Father. You are our only God. So please be with us. Let's take this time to pray. And with the word that we've been given through our Lord Jesus Christ, let's pray and reflect on what our life is like. And if you have been convicted by the word of God that you need to hear and obey his voice, know that God is gracious and he himself goes, I am sending you a helper. He knows that we couldn't do it on our own. He promises us a helper. That's the Holy Spirit. In prayer, we call out to him. And in faith, we receive him. And because of his goodness, we are received unto him. So let's take time to pray. Let's lift up our hearts to God.